We'll read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as not as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reveler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are also who are outside. Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, in connection with this uh, scripture reading, we also turn to the Heidelberg Catechism on Lord's Day 31, question and answer 85. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we come this evening to consider that second uh, key of the kingdom, which Christ entrusted to the administration of the church. We considered uh, the key of the preaching of the gospel last time, by which the, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut to unbelievers. And now we consider that, that second key of Christian or church discipline. We read from Matthew 18 where that language of binding and loosing is used by our Lord Jesus. Whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And that is in connection with his description of the, the practice of, 
of uh, mutual care, but also then leading to formal church discipline. But that language of binding and loosing is first used in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus said to his disciples, I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, so that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So that binding and loosing authority and power of the Christian church, according to the command of Christ, includes, uh, along with the preaching of the gospel, the exercise of, of uh, church discipline. Now we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which uh, records for us what we might call uh, an actual situation in which church discipline is exercised, and we might even say it's an extreme example of discipline. Uh, it's an extreme example of discipline. I use that language, and actually that's the language that's used in the form for excommunication uh, to describe excommunication itself as an, an extreme measure of discipline. But I also use it here because uh, it's important that we're clear that uh, it would be wrong, it would be mistaken if our entire view of church discipline uh, were defined by this chapter alone. Uh, we will look at its teaching in connection with the catechism tonight, but we do not do so uh, under the notion that it gives to us a complete picture of church discipline. In fact, the same could be uh, said of, of uh, question and answer 85 of the Heidelberg Catechism, because as important as it is, it is itself but a brief outline. And we must appreciate the fact that, that church discipline is not limited to uh, proceedings towards those who persist in scandal or sin. If that were the case, we would simply have a negative view of church discipline and we would think of it only in terms of the, the work of the consistory uh, concerned with big problems. And uh, that would be uh, a, a narrow and too limited view of Christian discipline in the church. The fact is that sin remains in all of us. The Heidelberg Catechism is confessing biblical truth when it says that the holiest men know but a small beginning of that uh, obedience to which we're called. James says, in many things we all offend, and every Christian is under the discipline of our faithful shepherd. We might see that involved even in the description of Christians as disciples. We're under the discipline of our Lord Jesus Christ for our good. And there is an ongoing mutual discipline, a mutual care that ought to characterize the people of God. In fact, we might say that the first challenge of, of Christian discipline is for all to show loving concern and, and gracious and faithful care for for one another, for good. We're all called to be concerned with the promotion of godliness and faithfulness in the body of Christ. And sometimes that does mean addressing faults as part of this high calling that all God's people have uh, to love one another. Open rebuke is better than secret love. And that's true with respect to our mutual relationships together as brothers and sisters. And indeed, this is an area for which we ought to all uh, seek that wisdom that comes from above. 
that wisdom which is first pure and peaceable and gentle and uh, easily entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without hypocrisy and partiality. That's the kind of spiritual and gracious wisdom that we all ought to seek so that we might grow better at exhorting one another, encouraging one another, caring for one another in love. Now, this is shown in warm encouragements and friendly admonitions. It's shown in kind reminders or sincere sincere appeals that we might make to one another. And it's shown likewise in a humble acceptance of such concern and care shown to us by others. A willingness to receive input, correction. So how might we describe a church that exercises this mutual care and discipline? How is it practiced? What kind of church is this? Well, we might say that it's a church where members are careful to avoid giving offense and where members are likewise slow to take offense, where members are wise and loving in dealing with offenses that do arise among us, and to pursue these things without legalism, without pride, and without hypocrisy. I know that's a tall order. But I think it's important that we recognize that really uh, the exercise of formal church discipline without this climate of mutual care and love, well, that will certainly become distorted. Now, this is all by way of introduction, but there's a sense in which uh, the introduction might be the most important point of the sermon in terms of what it means for all of us to have a care for one another. And that's the background then to... Uh, our rather limited theme on formal church discipline, and that is that the church must exercise the Lord's discipline. And uh, the focus of our of our uh, Lord's Day and the focus of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 5 is largely on that more formal and official exercise of church discipline by the church. We want to begin by looking at the situations that require church discipline and particularly in this formal way that we're looking at. And basically, that could be described this way. It's when professing Christians contradict their profession. That's basically what Paul is describing when he says, if anyone, uh, I've written you not to keep company, with anyone named a brother, that is a professing believer, who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. In other words, this is a description of a person who is named a brother. He has a Christian profession, but he is acting. He's living contrary to that profession. He's contradicting it by his life. And that calls for the discipline of the church. Our catechism puts it this way. It describes those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives. Now, obviously, that itself needs to be interpreted, doesn't it? Because you might say that all sin and all doctrinal error is, uh, by definition, unchristian. There are not Christian sins. There are not Christian errors when it comes to the interpretation of Scripture. And certainly all sin is under the discipline of the Word of God. 
The word of God is, is aimed at correcting our thinking, sharpening our understanding according to God's will, and correcting our lives, reforming us more and more, transforming us after the image of Christ. So all sin is under the discipline of this word, and that means that this definition of the situations that require discipline must not be pressed to such an extreme that that uh, every persistent character fall, flaw, we all have character flaws, and sadly... The fact is that we're going to carry those character flaws to our graves. The personal manifestation of our own sin will not be perfectly cured in this life. Now, hopefully we will make continual progress, even against our besetting sins. But the full cure awaits our glorification. And so every persistent character flaw, or certainly every kind of doctrinal confusion or error is not the, the, the basis for any kind of uh, formal church discipline. Now, the fact is that God's Word calls us all to the highest standard. Be holy, the Lord says, for I am holy. In fact, be holy as I am holy. And those are commands that we're called to take seriously. Our aim is conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust you want that. I trust you sincerely desire that. But have any of us arrived? That's our aim. And if that's our aim, we'll also appreciate the input input from our brothers and sisters that would help us move in that direction. There's a there's a, a passage in the Psalms where the where the psalmist says, Let the righteous smite me, and it shall be a, a kindness. It's like an excellent oil. It won't break my head. And perhaps even admonition or criticism that's not given in the most loving way ought to be interpreted graciously and humbly as the Lord's providential way of saying, you know, you really should work on that. Maybe they were unkind. Maybe they were kind of unfair. But there's probably something to their criticism that that I ought to take to heart and try to learn from it. Have any of us arrived? You haven't. And neither has your brother and sister. And that's why the, the scriptures repeatedly call for such things as forbearance, long-suffering, patience. Those graces that must necessarily oil the gears of human relationships. Where everything seizes up. There's big problems without the exercise of those graces in view of the reality of sin. Love covers a multitude of sins. And so not everything that is unchristian, we might say, in the church requires formal discipline. And the intent of church discipline, again, is not to purify the church with such vigor as to ensure that only the born again remain in the church. That is unrealistic. And if people pursue church discipline with that aim, well, the, the danger is that they're going to be uprooting a lot of wheat along with the tares. The Belgian Confession and its description of the true church in Article 29 makes clear that it's not, it's not uh, describing the hypocrites that are always mixed with the church, that are externally or physically joined to it. And that will always be the case. And any view of church discipline that proceeds with the idea that you can so 
purify the church, that everyone truly is born again, everyone is a genuine believing Christian, that's wrong-headed. It's impossible to apply because we can't read men's hearts. And there's a lot about people's lives that we are just not privy to. Now the word reaches where formal discipline doesn't. And all sins are addressed. But church discipline is not intended to so purify the church as to guarantee that everyone is truly born again. Unchristian, in the language of our confession here, refers to doctrines or practices that are so in conflict with the truth and the influence of the gospel that one cannot be a true Christian and persist in these things, such that without repentance, one is not a true believer. That's how we hear this list there in uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, in chapter 11. That's how we understand uh, the list that's given, for example, in the form for the Lord's Supper, in form number 1, where it says, Those who do not sincerely believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves, according to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, Those who know themselves to be engaging in the following sins without repentance have no part in the kingdom of Christ and should therefore abstain from coming to the table of the Lord. And then we have this long list. In a former edition, they're called gross sins. I notice that that it's removed from this current translation, and I suppose it could be misleading. Uh, All sins are gross, not in the sense that they're icky, but in the sense that uh, there are no small sins committed against such a great God. But yet when we read this sins, we realize that they are flagrant uh, abuses and contradictions of our Christian calling. It speaks of those who are idolaters, those who call upon deceased saints or angels or other creatures. In other words, those who pray to idols, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or other forms of superstition, all those who despise God, His Word, and His holy sacraments, all blasphemers, those who seek to raise discord, factions, and dissensions in the church or in the state, perjurers, all who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robbers, gamblers, covetous people, and all who lead offensive lives, all those who continue in such sins, shall abstain from the Lord's Supper. All those who are known to continue in such sins are the proper subjects for church discipline. In other words, they show themselves to be unbelieving and ungodly. Now, this doesn't itself make the application easy and simple. It must be exercised with uh, maturity, with spiritual discernment by men who of themselves are of good character. Thankfully, in our understanding of church government, it's exercised also with accountability and oversight also of other brothers. We never proceed to any kind of public uh, discipline where a name is announced without first going to classes, where a name is not mentioned, but a situation is described, and the elders are... uh, open themselves up to questions and inquiry. Have you exercised faithful care? How long has this been going on? And we seek the advice, concurring advice, from 
from classes before we proceed because we want to deal with integrity and faithfulness and accountability to others. So it's not an easy matter. It must be done in dependence upon the Holy Spirit with humility. And it's also important to know that it's never the commission of sin that requires excommunication. It is never the commission of sin that requires excommunication, but rather it is persistence in sin without repentance. 1 Corinthians 5 describes characters. It describes ongoing behavior. If one is covetous, if his life is marked and characterized by covetousness, or he is an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, He's not someone that simply reviled another person in a temper and acknowledges that was wrong. I'm sorry. It's not simply someone who got drunk, but someone who is characterized by this sin. So it's the persistence in sin without repentance. And when that becomes clear, when that becomes evident, well, this is a situation that requires church discipline. But we consider, secondly, the extreme remedy of church discipline. And I use that word extreme remedy, as I said, it's language that's, that's used in the form to describe excommunication, which is that, that final step in the practice of, of formal and public, uh, church discipline. And it's a step that is described in, in our catechism when it speaks of, uh, um, exclusion from the church and the sacraments, but it's very clear in uh, Lord's Day 31, in question and answer 85, that this is after repeated, personal, loving admonitions. In other words, it's the, it's the culmination of a process over time. It's a situation which, according to, uh, as is similar in the language of, of uh, question and answer 82, it's a situation in which people have shown by what they profess or how they live, that they are unbelieving and ungodly. And that requires then this extreme remedy. And there are three things involved in that. And the first is that a judgment is rendered. A judgment is rendered by the church. According to the word of God, a verdict is reached, which in effect is, yes, such and such a person has shown themselves to be ungodly and unbelieving by their refusal to repent of sin. Paul uses that language of judgment concerning himself in verse 3. I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present. Him who has so done this deed, I have judged him. I have reached a verdict with respect to him and his behavior. And the church is obligated to make judgments of of such kind. Do you not judge those who are inside? That's a rhetorical question in verse 12. In other words, isn't it not the responsibility of the church to maintain her character as a believing body so as to make evaluations if there is evidence of those among them who are not living or believing as Christians? You don't turn a blind eye. You don't pretend it doesn't exist or that it doesn't matter. Well, I realize that that is offensive language to many ears. 
Perhaps one of the most familiar and often quoted passage in the Bible is judge not, that you be not judged. It's in the same passage that warns against false prophets. How are you going to make a judgment about a false prophet if you're forbidden to make any judgments whatsoever? No, Jesus forbids a judgmental spirit. Jesus forbids a proud and hypocritical uh, judgment of others. But it cannot be defended from Scripture whatsoever that that Christians are to live without discernment where they distinguish right from wrong, where they distinguish true and faithful teachers from false teachers, or those who have a credible Christian confession who by their doctrine and life not only profess but give evidence of following the gospel, and those who clearly don't. A church that is unwilling to make such judgments will lose its Christian identity. In the name of tolerance, it will lose its Christian character because all kinds of false teachings will be tolerated and all kinds of ungodly living will simply be winked at without consequence. So the church is required to make judgments. A judgment is rendered. There is a disfellowshipping that is that is to be practiced. In other words, those who live in sin must face the reality of their situation. And the church is obligated to help them do that. In other words, that means that they may not allow them to think that the relationship to their brothers and sisters continues as before, while they live in sin, without repentance. That's what's described in verse 11. Where Paul says, now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. This is one of those passages that provides a a biblical basis for the practice of what is called silent censure or those first steps of discipline, which involves removal of the privilege of access to the Lord's table. And yes, that can become public. In fact, in, in, uh, biblical and reformed, um, language of, of discipline, it's often been called excommunication minor. When one is already forbidden access to the table because they're persisting in sin. That's not the final excommunication. There is still the opportunity for repeated admonitions in the hope and with the prayer that it will not come to that final excommunication. But even at that step, a brother or sister is forbidden access to the sacraments, and when it's public, that means that the congregation of the Lord ought not to pretend to have Christian fellowship with them. Now again, the application of that may be challenging and difficult. You might pray for them. You probably don't want to pray with them. As if you're Christians together and everything is fine. And again, the application may be challenging, but according to Scripture, there is a kind of wholesome disfellowshipping that is aimed to confront a brother or sister that's living in sin with the fact that they cannot do that without consequences. And then finally, there is an action that is to be taken. It's described in the first uh, or the last part of verse 13 of First Corinthians 5, where Paul says, therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Put away from yourselves the evil person. 
you know, it might notice that, uh, well, in my uh, translation, and it's, it's in italics, and it's uh, a reference to Old Testament uh, language. It's actually found frequently. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we hear such language in chapter 17, verse 7, in uh, chapter 19, verse 19, in chapter 22, verse 21, and 24, in chapter 24, with verse 7. In every case, it is the... Uh, the description actually of an execution where one is removed from the people of God by death for what is judged as a capital sin under the old covenant. And that language indicates the seriousness, the solemnity of such an action, though it does not involve a capital punishment or an excommunication. It doesn't even involve the physical removal of a person from attending church. It involves a spiritual judgment in the name of Christ by which one is removed from the fellowship and the communion of the church and is no longer a member of that covenant community. Verse 5 in chapter 5 of our reading uses such alarming language when it says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Deliver such a one to Satan? What does that mean? It's certainly not a kind of malicious activity that says, go to the devil, right? No, no, no. It's the recognition that to be a Christian, to be a living member of the church of Jesus Christ, is to have a place in the kingdom of God's dear Son. It means to be among those who have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Right? That's how this kingdom is described. That's how the grace of God to believers is described in Colossians 1. Paul gives thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And the church is the manifestation of that spiritual heavenly kingdom on earth in which believers have a place at their Father's table as members of the family in this fellowship and communion of love under His promise of forgiveness with access to the sacraments, those tokens of His grace and favor. And Jesus says to the church, I give to you the keys, not of the church building, not of your denomination. I give to you the keys of the kingdom. So whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. There is this spiritual authority to this judgment such that when it is faithfully exercised, one's relationship, not simply to the local church, but one's relationship to the kingdom of God is clarified. And in the case of excommunication, it's a rather dreadful clarification that says outside. Outside that realm. Outside and back into that place where the children of wrath live. Where Satan works in the sons of disobedience, holding them captive to his will. In that realm where the spirit of darkness Hold sway. That's a dreadful consideration. 
It also says something, doesn't it, about the contempt for the Christian church that so many have today, so many professing Christian church, uh, so many profession Christians. They want to consider themselves believers, but they're uh, indifferent to the church of Jesus Christ in its historical, biblical, manifest character as a communion of saints under the word and sacraments. Now, again, that, 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 we need to, need to make a distinction between those who may be between churches for providential reasons, those who are preparing for membership. No, we're talking about those who despise the church of Jesus. We're de- de- talking about those who have contempt for the church building work of Jesus Christ, who in effect, by their practice, place themselves outside that manifestation of the kingdom of God upon earth. Nothing to sneeze at, to use colloquial speech. It's the most serious thing. To define Christianity in any other way than that which involves membership in the body of Christ practiced in its actual concrete manifestation on earth. Yes, the exercise of of, uh, church discipline is difficult. Ask any elder. Ask him, what's the hardest thing that you do as an elder? He'll tell you. It's trying to exercise discipline faithfully. Always difficult. Always painful. And it's something that that many will view as uh, judgmental and unloving. So how can we do it? What can motivate the church in the exercise of this? Well, that leads us to consider thirdly the authority behind church discipline. Our Answer to uh, this question in uh, question answer 85. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? Begins with according to the command of Christ. According to the command of Christ. If we understand the significance, we begin with the fact that it's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of obedience to the word of the Lord who is the head and king of the church. Paul reminds uh, the church of that. In verse 4, where he says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together. They're gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That describes worship. Along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of of the flesh. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And in the context of the exercise of church discipline, the Lord Jesus is reminding the church of the authority by which they carry out his will. And it's in this light also that we must see how Paul describes his own involvement when he says, with my spirit, they must carry out his directive as if he were present with them, remembering his authority as an apostle of Christ. And by remembering his authority as an apostle of Christ, who was commissioned with this task of laying the foundation of the church, well, that will assure them that they act by the authority of Christ, who sent him. But it's important for us to know that faithful church discipline has the same authority today. And here lies the weight of this spiritual sentence that is given. It's the judgment of Christ. God himself excludes excommunicated ones from the kingdom of Christ. Whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That's spiritual authority and spiritual power. 
And it's a spiritual authority and a spiritual power that is to be viewed in both aspects, binding and loosing, right? Whatsoever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It is a a, a, a dreadful pair, a power, we might say, but it's also a gracious power to loose. And that leads us finally to consider the goals of church discipline. Excommunication uh, need not be the final act of the church. And that's uh, certainly crucial to our thinking about it. Uh, in fact, restoration is clearly the intent, even as it's described in verse 5, where Paul says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? Well, the fact is that God's discipline, even in the lives of his children, sometimes, you might even say often, appears in the form of physical suffering. In 1 Corinthians 11, where the Lord's table was being abused, abused, Paul says, for this cause, because of this sin that's being tolerated in the church, many of you are sick. Some of you have fallen asleep. Some of them died. Why? Because they were failing to judge themselves, and so the Lord was judging them. He was disciplining them in order to wake them up and bring them to repentance. And so it could mean suffering all kinds of hardships of a physical uh, nature, ways that affect one's actual life situation, perhaps his employment, perhaps his circle. It may be also that the destruction of the flesh here refers to the destruction of the sinful nature, the mortification of sin, the destruction of that sinful nature that leads to repentance from the conviction of sin as the ravages of sin run their course in terms of physical or mental or social consequences. The goal is that those consequences would be faced and that the aim of restoration would be realized. That actually took place here in Corinth. We can read in Paul's second letter, instruction with respect to the church in receiving this member who had come to repentance, receiving him back into the fold. The goal is restoration. That's not the only goal. There is also the purity of the congregation. Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new leaven, a new lump. The very property, the characteristic of leaven or of sin is that it spreads, it creeps, it influences others. When it's not dealt with, that's the dangerous consequence of it. Christians have been radically separated from sin through Christ. You are truly unleavened. We considered this some weeks ago. That's a description of their sanctification in Christ as his people. But they must preserve that sanctification. They must protect it and honor it. And to allow sin to creep and to spread is contrary to who they are by grace. For indeed you are unleavened. For Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So there is the aim of restoring those who have fallen. The aim is the purity of the congregation and in connection with those things, but to uh, spell it out specifically, the aim of church discipline is the glory of God. The glory of God in maintaining His holiness, 
in maintaining the character of his people. The church was lying about God. They were lying about the church as they boasted in their tolerance. That appears to be what's happening. He says, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. In other words, they were proud perhaps of grace. Oh, grace is so rich. Look at we, we, we can tolerate that. Christ forgives. No, they're lying about the church. The knowledge of God's grace is an impetus for godliness, showing our love for the Lord and walking in His ways. It's the glory of God that's involved in the exercise of discipline. The Belgian Confession uh, gives church discipline as the third mark of the true church. It's something that really cannot be separated from the pure preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments because if discipline is not maintained, the preaching of the gospel is going to be corrupted with error and the administration of the sacraments is going to be, it's going to be profaned. So God's honor must be maintained in the church by discipline and the riches of God's grace must be proclaimed and maintained also by church discipline. You know, there's a sense in which we ought to see church discipline as the test of our faith, as a test of our belief in the gospel, including its urgency. What could lead a church to make judgments against another fellow sinner? What could lead a church to uh, accept this teaching of Scripture and actually practice it in our day? Uh, there are many things that we could say about that, but I think fundamental to a biblical answer is that we do believe that God is a righteous judge. We do believe that those who die or those who are found by the returning judge to be living in sin, maintaining unchristian doctrine or life, that they will face a sudden and swift, irreversible condemnation and judgment. They will go to hell. We really believe that. And so in the exercise of discipline, we're showing that we believe that in such a way is it that is aimed and calculated to bring people to wake up to that so that they would turn from sin before it's too late. To turn from sin while there is yet the aim, the goal of restoration, return, repentance. So there's a sense in which the exercise of discipline bears testimony to the urgency of the gospel. The fact that we really do believe it. We believe that the judgment of God is serious. And we love others enough to try to bring that to their awareness in a painful way. Isn't that the way to view discipline in the light of God's word and in the light of the care of a faithful shepherd who says, whom I, as many as I love, I rebuke, therefore be zealous and repent. The one who seeks out wandering sheep, he does so by human instruments who make telephone calls and send letters and maybe knock on doors. The Lord Jesus himself doesn't do that personally, but he does it truly and really. And his aim and his intention is gracious and loving so that there may be repentance and a return to his fold and true security under his care. So let's not look at church discipline in a negative way, but see it as a manifestation of the love of the Savior for his people. Amen.